Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 8. We have two more Sundays in chapter 8, and then we will finish out chapter 8, and we will put, uh, press the pause button on the Gospel of John, because starting June 5th, we are going to be spending our summer in the parables. So the last two years, we spent the summer in the Psalms. This year, we decided we're going to stay in the Psalms as far as the Bible reading is concerned. So we are going to do our scripture reading and pastoral prayer from the Psalms, and we will be putting pause, pressing pause on Hebrews. But we will be preaching from the parables. Um, we have a lot of people that have asked uh, questions about parables. Um, some of you, your favorite passages are in the parables. One of my favorite passages is, is a parable. So we wanted to spend some time in the parables. So June, July, August will be in the parables, summer through the parables. So we have two more sermons on John 8, and then uh, we will come back in September to John 9, which I'm very excited about. John 9 is one of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of John. Um, it'll be very, very encouraging. But as we finish out John chapter 8, we've been in a section where Jesus is teaching and he's really coming to a place of attrition with his enemies. The Pharisees, the Jewish leaders are not believing. They are determined in their unbelief. And even as Jesus offers himself as the light of the world, as living water, as um, everything that you need, if you would turn from yourself and turn to him, the Son will make you free. In these verses that we study this morning, we're going to see the answer, the response. Um, this is religion's response to Jesus' offer of freedom. Jesus says, I, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will never be in darkness. I am uh, everlasting water that will quench every thirst you have. Religion's response when Jesus says, if the Son makes you free, you're a slave right now, but I can make you free. And if I make you free, you will be free indeed. There's only two responses. There's the response to say, yes, I will follow you. Or there's the response of religion. And though we don't like to think it, we are much more like these Pharisees than we would wish. So we will hear their response as a religious one to Jesus' offer of freedom. Let's read these verses together. I'm going to start in verse 36, and we'll read through 47. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. Because I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? 
It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God, and for this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Father, I pray that you would teach us this day what it means to be of God, what it means to be a child of God, that we would see our own religious response to your offer of freedom, a free gift of grace that we so often take and want to add to. I pray that as we stare at the Pharisees and the religious leaders and we want to stand as far away from them as possible and distance ourselves from their theology and from their understanding of salvation, God, I pray this morning that we would see ourselves in this text And that you would convict us of the time that we seek to add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our arguments might be a little bit differently stated. But deep down we say the exact same thing that the Pharisees say. So teach us this morning. Holy Spirit, be our guide. Bring clarity to these verses so that we would understand your truth. And that the truth would make us free. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So we have seen in this chapter already, the only way to be free is that the Son will set you free. So if the Son has set you free, you are truly free. Free indeed. That's what we looked at last week. When Jesus makes that offer, the Jewish people make three claims. They respond to him in three ways. And these three claims are their ticket to not needing Jesus' offer of freedom. Jesus is saying, if you want to go to heaven, I am the only way. And what the Pharisees are going to say in response is, there's another way and we have it. There's another way and we have it. Let me give you the three rationales that they give, the three arguments. This is going to be our outline. Three points, three arguments that they make. One starts in verse 33, so we're going to have to hop back up to verse 33. The first argument they make is that they're physical descendants of Abraham. So point number one, they're physical descendants of Abraham. This is in verse 33. The second argument they make, they say, wait, wait, we don't need you. We don't need your offer of freedom because, number two, we are spiritual descendants of Abraham. And that's in verse 39. We'll take these as we come to them. The third response is an even broader, bigger response. Number three, they say, we're children of God. And this is in verse 41. We're children of God. So number one, we don't need you because we're physical descendants of Abraham, verse 33. Number two, we don't need you because we're spiritual descendants of Abraham, verse 39. And number three, we don't need you because we're children of God, verse 41. All of these responses made me think this week as I was studying. Do you remember doing those family tree projects in school? You have to find your lineage. You have to find your heritage. You have to go back and see where you came from. That was something that I had to do in school and this big poster board that was way too overpriced. And um, you write down all the, you know, your family tree and you see your history and your lineage. People have a fascination with that. I mean, even to this day, 
Sometimes on Facebook or on the Internet, I'll have a pop-up ad that will say, do you want to know where your ancestry is, you know, where your heritage lies? And you can click on that and find out your ancestors' history. I think people are infatuated with those things because they, they want to know that somebody famous is in their lineage, right? We're not famous, so maybe somebody else is famous. Um, this whole dialogue with Jesus reminded me of that. Their answer to Jesus' offer of free grace is, look at our family tree. Look at our family tree. Why do they do that? doesn't make sense to me, but as we go through, hopefully it will make more sense as they argue against Jesus. The reality is, spiritually, there are only two possibilities in your family tree, in your heritage. You are either of God the Father or of your father the devil. There's only two options. And as we trace our family tree, historically, spiritually speaking, we want to be in the family of God. We want to be in the family of God. Now, one more thing before we dive in. There's a question here. It's been asked of me several times. You read Jesus' words, he's going to call them out. He's going to say, you are not of God the Father. You, have our, you are of your father the devil. That's a pretty harsh statement to make. There are people that ask, why is Jesus so harsh? Why does he say these things so um, starkly, so harshly? Just briefly. I want to give you the reason why and... Ultimately, I believe this is true love, what Jesus is doing. The reality is, he is being this severe because they are so stubborn in their unbelief, they're directly confronting him, and he's trying to show them that. He's trying to show their direct disbelief, their stubbornness. He's trying to reveal and condemn that unbelief so that they would repent. He has made invitation after invitation after invitation, and they are rejecting So what he's doing in these verses is mercy to preach this way so that they can be warned. If you don't repent of where you are, you will perish. You will go to hell forever. And in his warnings, some of the Pharisees actually will repent. Some will come to Jesus. And we're going to meet some of those towards the end of this gospel. Most won't. Most will stay determined in their disbelief. But what Jesus is doing here is truly loving. It's necessary to show them their sinful condition. They're blind. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say when he was preaching very evangelistic sermons, he would say, my aim is not only to show the sinner their sin, but to prove to them from the scriptures that they are sinners so that I can bring them to Jesus helpless, hopeless, and in need of a savior. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is crushing their disbelief and showing them they need a Savior. So, this is actually true love. This is Jesus living out what Paul will write in Ephesians. Speak the truth in love. That's why that verse is there. It's so easy to speak the truth. But to speak it with love, with the motivation, with, with a, a gentleness when needed and a uh, uh, a bitiness, a saltiness to it when necessary. Speak the truth in love. Jesus is doing that perfectly. And as he speaks, the Jewish people are going to respond. 
Let's look at their first argument. Number one, they claim in verse 33, we are Abraham's descendants. We have never been enslaved to anyone. So how is it that you say we will become free? We are Abraham's descendants. So their first argument when Jesus says you're slaves and you need me is we are kids of Abraham. We're kids of Abraham. Why is this where they go first? This, remember, this is their ticket to say, we don't need you, we're good on our own. Why do they go here first? They go here because they're claiming to be Jewish people. They're claiming to be God's chosen people of the physical descendant line of Abraham. And here's why they say that. Here is rabbinical teaching from the second century. Quote, Abraham himself sits beside the gates of hell and does not allow a Jewish person to enter. So, they run to Abraham and being physical descendants of Abraham, we are Jews, we are Jewish people, and therefore, because we are Jewish, we don't need you to get us into heaven because there's no chance we can go to hell. Being Jewish, in their minds, saved them. Justin Martyr, who was one of the early church fathers, Uh, He was uh, right around 150 A.D. He was in a debate with a Jewish man in what's called the Dialogue of Trifo. And they were talking about salvation. He was talking to this Jewish man about his need for Jesus as Messiah to save him. And this man said these words. This Jewish man responds to Justin Martyr with these words. Those who are the seed of Abraham according to the flesh shall in every case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient towards God, they will share in the eternal kingdom. So, the Pharisees, the religious leaders are saying, we don't need a Messiah to give us salvation. We already have it because we are Jewish people. Jesus is saying to them, in spite of everything that you've been taught about your lineage, in spite of what you think, Your ethnicity doesn't save you. Being Jewish doesn't save you. Jesus even agrees. Drop down to verse 37. Jesus agrees with them. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. I know that. You're right. You are Jews. But you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I agree with you, Jesus is saying. You are physical descendants of Abraham, but that doesn't make you a disciple of the Messiah, a disciple of Jesus. You don't just waltz into the kingdom because you are a Jewish person. Now, we look at that and we go, okay, that has no application to us, right? We're not claiming to be saved because we're Jewish people. What is it in our context? I've heard many of these statements before. Uh, I know I'm going to heaven because I was born in a Christian home. I know I'm I'm going to heaven because I was born in a Christian home. Or one of my personal favorites is when you hear somebody give their testimony and they say, I've been saved my whole life. Now, giving them the benefit of the doubt, I think I know what they're saying. I I think that they're saying, as far back as I can remember, I love Jesus and I follow Jesus. There's a better way to say that, though, because we're not saved our whole lives, right? You're not born a Christian. Um, Clearly, as we've seen, you're born in bondage to sin. So, no, we haven't been saved our whole lives. Growing up in a Christian home doesn't make you saved. 
doesn't make you um, just a perfect candidate. You're going to heaven because your parents believe in Jesus. Um, some people would look to the fact that we are born in a Christian nation. Let's put that in quotations. We're a Christian nation. Well, because we're born in a Christian nation, we're God's chosen people. One nation under God. Here we go. We're saved. I, I doubt that that is your argument. But here's one I have heard many times from well-meaning churchgoers. I go to a church. Name the church. I go to a church, and this church has an amazing legacy with an amazing pastor, and I've been at that church my whole life. As if being a part of a church saves you. Um, Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just like standing in a garage doesn't make you a car. Um, you, You must make a decision to say, I am helpless apart from Jesus and he must save me. So, anything that we would use on the last day before God to say, hey, see God, this is why I can get into heaven because of this. Fill in the blank. I don't need your son because of this. That's what the Jewish people are saying. For them, it was their ethnicity to begin with. Jesus says, no, even though you physically are Abraham's descendants, you clearly are not saved because you're seeking to kill me. My word has no place in you. Verse 38, I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. So he says, my father, and he's already identified my father is God, the one true God. And then he says, you have a different father. Now, if you're a humble person at this point, when Jesus says, I have a father and you have a different father, your question should be, wait, who's my father? Because I don't want to have a different father other than God the father. So please tell me who my father is. But their response in verse 39 to that statement is their second argument. Abraham, they answered, is our father. Jesus is going to tell them the devil is your father. And they're going to say, no, no, Abraham's our father. Abraham is our father. So this is a little bit more than just physical descendants. This is point number two. They are claiming to be spiritual descendants of Abraham. Abraham is our father. Not just physically. Obviously, they've said that. We are ethnically Jews. But we're also spiritually Jews. We are keepers of the law. In a very spiritual sense, we are descendants of Abraham by keeping the law. God gave Abraham the gift, the blessed calling. Uh, You are going to be chosen, and through you, all of these nations are going to be blessed. And through you, the line of the Messiah is coming. And through you, all of these different things. And then through him, Moses comes and gives the law. So if you're going to be a good Jewish person, you're going to keep the Torah. So what they're saying is, we don't need you to get us to heaven. We have the law to get us to heaven. We have the spiritual uh, abilities on our own to keep the law to get us to heaven. We don't need you. Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if Abraham were your father, if you were truly his kids, then do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. And then I love this statement. Yeah, Abraham didn't do that. (laughs) If you are Abraham's kids, do what he did. You're seeking to kill me. Abraham never tried to kill me. What did Abraham do? What is Jesus referring to? Do the deeds that Abraham did. Well, if you drop down to verse 56... He explicitly says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus. 
But if we had time, we could turn there. Just write down Genesis 18. You remember this section of Scripture. The pre-incarnate Jesus shows up. Shows up with other angels to make a promise to Abraham and to Sarah. It's a promise that Sarah laughs at. You're going to have a child in your old age. Abraham believes. There's a little bit of wavering, but he believes. But even before that's even announced... Abraham sees the pre-incarnate Jesus, the angel of the Lord. He sees him and he rejoices and he welcomes him into his house. Come, come be a part of our fellowship. Let's cook food. Let's have a meal. Let's have a feast. Jesus is here. God's representative is here. God with us. Jesus says, Abraham didn't kill me. He rejoiced to see my day. He gladly enjoyed having fellowship with me. And then I also told him truth. I spoke to him. I'm speaking to you. You're trying to kill me. I spoke to him. What did he do? He believed. Abraham believed all the way back to the beginning of the story with Abraham. Go into this land. I'm going to give it to you. Okay, I'll go. I'll take all of my people, all of my families, all of my friends. I'll take all of my cattle and livelihood. I'll take everything and move solely because God told me. I'll do it. Um, Get circumcised, because to be circumcised or to be a part of the covenant, this is going to be the sign of the covenant, get circumcised. Okay, God, whatever you say. You're going to have a son in your old age. Sarah's barren, but you're going to have a son. Okay, God, now you have a son. Go take that son. Kill that son. Sacrifice him for me. Okay, God. So Jesus says to the religious leaders, if you were truly spiritual descendants of Abraham... You'd be living differently. As it is, you are living in such a way that's exactly the opposite. You don't love me, you don't rejoice to see me, and you're not obeying my words. So, what are you doing? Verse 41. You are doing the deeds of your father. You're doing the deeds of your father. You're not doing what Abraham did. So, physical descendants, uh, born in a Christian home, Um, parents are Christians, Christian at a young age, part of a Christian nation, go to a good church. What about this argument in our context, in our culture? This argument is so clearly, this is the one I hear most often when I'm sharing the gospel. If I were to ask somebody, how would you get into heaven? How do you know without a shadow of a doubt you're going to heaven? Their answer, you know it, I'm a good person. That's all these Jewish people are saying. We keep the law. We do what Abraham told us to do through Moses, through all these people. We keep the law. We're good people. We're good people. Or, uh, yeah, I've done bad things, but I'm working hard. I've got good karma that's going to outweigh bad karma. That whole karma question and debate uh, is just totally illogical because... The bottom line is you can have as many good works as you want, but even in a fundamental understanding of karma, your good works cannot get rid of your bad works. In an understanding of karma, in kind of a New Age movement, in a Hinduism mindset, in a Near Eastern religion mindset, you are trying to just have your good works outweigh your bad works. So you have bad works on one side of the scale, you have good works, and you want to just do more good than bad. And if you do that, you'll be okay. The reality is, you are still called to be perfect, so you have to do something with those bad works. People say, I'm a good person. I'm better than so-and-so. That's why we have to take them to the law. 
Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Are you perfect? You can go the whole way of the master route. Some of you have heard that before where Ray Comfort and other pastors go just to the Ten Commandments. Have you kept the Ten Commandments perfectly? Can you even say all the Ten Commandments? Have you kept them perfectly? No? Okay, then if you were judged by God's standard, where would you go on Judgment Day? We would all go to hell, and we know that because of everything we've studied thus far in these verses. Two messages ago, diving into the reality of our bondage to sin, we can't do anything to burn away our sinful past. So this argument doesn't work. First, they say we're ethnically okay because we're Jewish people, so we get to go into heaven because of who we are intrinsically. Jesus says that doesn't work. Secondly, they say, well, we're keepers of the law. We've done everything that Abraham did. And Jesus says, no, actually, you're not doing that. And you couldn't be good enough anyway. You couldn't be good enough. By the way, what does it mean to truly be a spiritual descendant of Abraham? Turn to Galatians just really quickly. I want you to see these verses because Paul addresses this question. Who is the truest Israel? Israel is still God's chosen people. Absolutely. Amen and amen. They have a plan. God has a plan for them. Millennial kingdom. Uh, Even before that, in the tribulation, 144,000 are going to be saved. Um, God has a plan. They are still God's chosen people. But how can we be grafted in to that lineage? How can we be grafted into the promises and the blessings? Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's the quote from Genesis 15. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. So how are we spiritual descendants of Abraham? It's through faith. It's not through our workings. Jewish people would say, I'm a son of Abraham spiritually. I'm a daughter of Abraham spiritually because I keep the law perfectly. We would say we're a son of Abraham spiritually because of Jesus. By faith in him alone, nothing that we could do. Spurgeon said it this way. If you're looking to your good works, it's not a good place to look to. He said, it is easier to save us from our sins than to save us from our righteousness. It's easier to save us from our sins than it is to save us from our righteousness. The Pharisees say, we are good people. Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, no. You were doing the deeds of your father. Verse 41. Again, second opportunity, they could totally say, wait a second, you keep saying your father, we thought our father was your father. What's going on here? Who is our father? Can you please help us? But in their pride, they say, uh, middle of verse 41, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. We have one father, God. This enters into the third and final argument that they make. So they're saying, number one, we're physical descendants of Abraham. Number two, we're spiritual descendants of Abraham. Number three, we're children of God. We are children of God. And they say this in a very strange way. They say, we are not born of fornication. We are children of one Father, and He is God. There's two main ways to understand that sentence. We're not born of fornication. Way number one is with the implied, like you are, Jesus. We aren't born of fornication like you are. Um, You are born of a quote-unquote virgin. Yeah, we don't buy that. 
You were born out of wedlock. We all know it. It was a huge scandal. Even so much so that I believe that's why there was, quote unquote, no room in the inn. Uh, if you've been at our church long enough, you know um, that's my view of that word, uh, Cataluma, of that understanding of a, a guest room. Um, they were not, the, the family was not allowing Mary and Joseph to be in the room where they normally would be because of this scandal. Nobody's buying this. You had a kid out of wedlock. Let's call it what it, what it truly is. You were unfaithful. It's not that you were, you know, your son was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Come on. So it could be that. It could be sarcastically saying, hey, we were not born of fornication. It could also be number two, um, their way of going back to the Old Testament saying that we have a pure uh, spiritual history. We are not born of other false gods. Um, We don't commit fornication and we have a pure lineage of people who didn't commit fornication with other gods and other idols. We are children of God because we are not pagan-born. We are not pagan-born. It could be either one of those two. The bottom line is they point to the fact, we're children of God, and it would be incredibly offensive to tell a Jew that God isn't their father. In fact, the devil is. What the Pharisees are saying is, we're not enslaved. We don't need your help. If there's anyone who is enslaved at this point, it's you, Jesus. You're enslaved to a scandalous past. You're enslaved to... Um, being known to be born of fornication. We are superior to you, and you're telling us that we need your help. We have Abraham, we have God, we have purity in our lineage, we don't need you. That's what they're saying. And Jesus answers, verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. I've not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. If you were to ask Jesus, okay, these Jewish people are not children of God. They are children of their father, the devil. How do I know I am a child of God? This is a great question to ask. How do you know you're saved? How do you know you truly are of the family of God? The most important question that you must have an answer to. Jesus lays out two ways in which we know that. He says, if God were your father, verse 42, you would what? You'd love me. Is there an eagerness to love the son and embrace him as your greatest treasure? And then he talks about his word. My word has no place in you. My word is not even heard. You can't even understand it. So is there an eagerness to hear and receive the word of God? Is there an eagerness to love and embrace the Son of God? And is there an eagerness to love and receive and hear the word of God? Those are two amazing tests of whether or not you're a child of God. Are you a child of the Father? Then you must love his Son and you must love his word. You must. Go back up to verse 37. Jesus says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I love this word, this word for place. My word has no place in you. The Greek word means uh, movement or progress. My word has no progress in you. In our vernacular, we would say, my words get nowhere with you. I'm getting nowhere with you. I keep on sharing truth and I'm getting nowhere. Why? They will not receive the word of God. They will not receive God's word, 
and they will not receive his son. They hate him. They hate him. Verse 43, Jesus says, Why do you not understand what I am saying? He poses a question. And he answers it. And when he does this, he gives us a a huge um, weapon in our arsenal as we share the gospel. He says, It is because you cannot hear my word. Most people think that they do not believe in Jesus because of their ignorance to who he is. I need to know more about him. I need to understand more. And then I will believe. What Jesus is saying here is, Ignorance isn't your problem. Unbelief is your problem. And unbelief breeds ignorance. You don't understand what I'm saying because you don't believe. If you want to understand what God's saying, do what the man did, the father did in Mark uh, chapter 9. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. There's places I'm struggling, but I believe you. Help my unbelief. The sinner is unable, unwilling, incapacitated because of their slavery and bondage to sin, as we saw three uh, sermons ago. And therefore, that makes them sons of the devil. You remember the wheat and the tares? We looked at that last week. When Jesus refers to people as either wheat and tares, he says that the tares are of their father, the devil. They're sons of the evil one. He says that here, too. Verse 44, You are of your father, the devil. You are sons of the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He's a liar and the father of lies. And one of the biggest lies that Satan preaches today is that everyone is a child of God. Jesus is asking them to stare seriously at their soul and realize they are stuck in their sin. They're stuck in their sin. They're blinded because of the liar that is blinding their eyes. They're they're children of the devil. He says, verse 45, Because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. I speak truth, but you're not believing me. And then he says this, Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He was of God. Here's the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you're not of God. So you claim to be of God, children of God. I'm telling you, you are not children of God. You can't just be born a Jewish person and be a child of God. But he asks them, who convicts me of sin? Is there something that I've done that discredits my words? You're clearly not believing what I'm saying. Why is that? Why is that? Do you know of some secret hidden sin And that's why you're not believing in me? Is there something I've done or said that mitigates my integrity? No. None. They can't point to anything. That's why, by the way, they're going to have to get false witnesses when they want to kill him. Now, if all of these words sound harsh towards Jewish people and just basically anti-Semitic, they're not because we're all in the same boat. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. This is not just true of Jewish people that are not following Jesus as Messiah. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. It's not just Jewish people. This is not just directed at Jewish people. 
It is by Jesus in that moment because he's speaking to Jewish people. But if he were here speaking to us, which he is through his word, he would say it's not just Jewish people. It's anyone who is practicing sin. Just as he said in John chapter 8, the one who sins is a slave to sin. You are a slave to sin and you are, your, you are of your father, the devil. So what do we do? We're stuck. Middle of verse 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. If the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. You can go about it your own way. Walk on your own path to get to heaven. You can claim your own righteousness. By the way, we've done that since the beginning of time. Again, we don't like to think we're Pharisees, but we're way more like Pharisees than we wish we were. The reason why is we're all born legalists. We're naturally born legalists. Remember in the Garden of Eden, you go all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden. They sin. Genesis chapter 3. You can look at this later today or sometime this week. Genesis chapter 3, they sin. And because of their sin, they experience shame and guilt, which is a good thing. That's a gift from God. So many people, when they feel guilty, they just want to get rid of guilt. I don't want to feel guilty anymore. It's good to let guilt do its job. But do you remember what Adam and Eve did when they felt guilty? They felt ashamed. God can see our sinful selves. We're naked. We're ashamed. We don't want God to see us. And they have two options. Option number one is go to God and say, we've sinned. You can see us. We need cleansing. We did what was wrong. And we need you. There's nothing we can do. Help us. But they, like us, like the religious leaders, go route number two. Let's make clothing out of fig leaves. Let's cover ourselves. Let's clothe our guilt and our shame. Let's fix this problem ourselves so that God doesn't have to be in this process. And when he sees us, he'll say, oh, everything's fine. You guys remember the story. They do that. They think, we're looking good now. God even gives them another opportunity. Where are you? What have you done? He asks them. He knows where they are and what they've done. He graciously says, where are you? What have you done? So that they would own up to it and confess. And then they start playing the blame game. Oh, it's the wife you gave me. Oh, it's the serpent you made. And so what does God do? Remember his promise. On the day that you eat of that fruit, you will die. Adam and Eve are still talking to God. We tend in our Christian mindset, we tend to go, well, they died spiritually. True. They ceased to be immortal. They became, yeah, true. But God said, you're going to die today. Well, uh, word means separation, so they're separated from God. They're, they're separated spiritually, and, and, well, God said you're going to die, and they're not dead. And in Genesis chapter 3, we have the very first picture of what substitutionary atonement looks like. God looks at their clothes, their fig leaves, and says, yeah, that doesn't do it. You deserve to die, and those clothes aren't going to save you. Your works of righteousness aren't going to save you. So what does God do? He kills an animal, he takes the animal skins, and he clothes them with animal skins. You deserve to die, I'm going to kill an animal instead. And I'm going to clothe you with my righteousness, with my works. I'm going to kill the animal, I'm going to skin the animal, and I'm going to clothe you, and you can walk away righteous. 
There's no way that we can go before God on our own good works. It's only by God cleansing us. If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. So, can I just ask you two questions? Number one, what do you tend most often to rely on to get you to God, to get you to heaven? Now, I believe for the majority of us, we would say Jesus alone, amen and amen. And we need to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. But we're sinful people, we're prideful people, and we're legalistic people. So what is it that you tend to say, well, I've got Jesus and, or I'm going to add to Jesus' work by this. What is it that you tend to run to? Is it the things that you do? I go to church every week. I read my Bible, and that will keep me say that will get me to a place where God looks at me and says, oh, you've done a good job. Is it the things you don't do? Well, I've never done this, and if I never do that ever in my life, then God will love me. The reality is we do the exact same thing that the Jewish leaders did. We tend to say, Jesus does 99% of it, and I need to add 1% of my work doesn't mean that you don't pursue working hard. We do. You know, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, work out your salvation. But don't work for. Rest in the work that Jesus has done on your behalf. Trust in his finished work. And then work because he has saved you, not in order to receive salvation. Question number two. What family are you a part of? Are you a child of God? Remember the test? Do you love Jesus? Remember 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22? Whoever does not love Jesus, whoever does not have love for the Lord is to be accursed. Being a believer in Jesus Christ is fundamentally loving Jesus. Do you love him? And secondly, do you embrace his word? Do you embrace his word? If you love Jesus and you treasure his word and you know the grace that you have because of what Jesus has done, You're in the family of God. You're adopted as a son, as a daughter, as we looked at last week. He has said it. He has done it. It's finished. But if you don't know today that you are a child of God, if you don't know that, there's a way to know that. There's a way to come to Jesus today. Pretty much in this passage, do everything that the Pharisees didn't do. Do the opposite. Humbly come before Jesus and say, where do I need you? And he will gladly tell you, you're a sinner and your sin deserves your death. All of us have sinned. This isn't anti-Jewish. This is all of us. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of our sin, Romans 6.23, is death. But there's been a provision made for you. You must be holy. You must be perfect to get to heaven. We never could be perfect. And so God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect sinless life that you and I could never live but needed to live to get to heaven on our own. And then Jesus died on the cross in our place, bearing the penalty for our sin, the wrath of God against our sin, so that those who would place their trust in him owning, I am a sinner in need of a Savior and I can't do any of this on my own. And I'll follow you because you saved me. If you would do that today, 
you could know without a shadow of a doubt you're going to heaven when you die because you're in the family of God. Father, thank you so much for your amazing love for us. Thank you so much for the grace that you have given us in Jesus Christ. Oh, how often we look at our own just deservings. We look at our good works. We look at the things that we have to offer you. God, may we be reminded today that they are but filthy rags. There is nothing that we could do that would earn us a right standing before you. And yet every day we tend to look at things that we have to offer. God, may we look at nothing but Jesus in these moments. May we stop playing the game of Christian karma to say, well, I'm not going to do that anymore and I'm going to try really hard and I'm going to do better so that Jesus loves me. God, today may we do better because Jesus already loved us and be motivated by grace. We say with the hymn writer, nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to your cross now we cling.